0: Meanwhile, recorded live in the Lava Lamp Lounge, it's Somewhere in Between, a radio zine. Uh-huh. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And Welcome! picking up where we last left off. It's issue 44, the Michael Cassett interview part 2. There's something incredibly charming about starting out in the world, just doing very simple basic things at home, maybe even from the small town that you grew up in, and then to someday find yourself working in television, making shows that you grew up knowing and loving and now you're the one writing them it's such a compelling story that as michael cassett is telling it i actually get excited myself trying to imagine what it was like for him to be a fan of the twilight zone and then to work on it this is probably the case for you as well but um, i know heather and i have talked about this on the show where um twilight zone was a was something for us growing up that the original rod Serling. Um, was like very influential and so when the 80s yeah. one came around I was like locked in um, I was like yes this is for me um, wh- how, I mean, did you grow up with that same experience of having watched a Twilight Zone and now you're making it?
1: Oh my god yes it was absolutely that because Twilight Zone I mean it was I'm older than you guys so to me it was I was seeing it new. You watch it. Have you seen it? The Twilight Zone?
2: I don't think so I don't like science fiction.
1: I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. Mitch and media says CBS might pull the plug. I'll kill myself. Although it was actually even slightly, I mean, I was, it was off the air by the time I was 10, I think. But I, mm-hmm. it was the creepy, scary show, that and Outer Limits. Sure. Mm-hmm. I wound up working on, on both of them. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, the, The idea was, oh my God, here's Twilight Zone and I have to be part of this. And by the time it was being revived, I was still working at CBS, but I had already sold a couple of comedy scripts.
0: Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh.
1: So I was at least somewhat experienced and i published a lot of short stories and i knew a few people like george and alan Brenner.
2: much like michael's career alan Brenner is a writer who started out in short fiction and novels and worked his way into comic books and television as his career progressed his first collection city of masks was published in 1978 when he was also writing scripts for the wonder woman tv show in comics Alan wrote a number of Batman stories as well as a few things for other titles too, and eventually found himself working for both The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits with Michael Cassett. Working largely in science fiction and fantasy, Alan did work on shows like Simon and & Simon and L.A. Law, where he won an Emmy. Alan also won a Nebula for Best Short Story in 1991.
1: So I was determined to be part of the new one and it got in, I think as one of the Early people to pitch freelance episodes, and because it was an anthology, they would—that's uh, what they were doing, and it was great. Never be blue? My come true. The Twilight Zone. Um, I'm not sure we consistently honored the, you know, Twilight Zone, at least the Twilight Zone that I up with and under, understood we did a few things that i thought were wildly inconsistent with that but then again it was the mid 80s not 1960. The family, the and there were some great writers and great stories that we did so it was it was fun i mean they keep they've arrived at like three or four times since right. um <laughs> always seeming to forget the core reason or the core nature of a twilight zones series and i i should um cite an exception here i think the third iteration uh a syndicated one that followed directly on the cbs mm. and j-, j michael Strasinski. joe Strasinski was the producer
2: known as a writer for print television and film j michael Strasinski is a prominent writer in science fiction and fantasy having done work in comics animation and got his start in radio and later journalism he is most well known for creating babylon 5 Crusade and Jeremiah, and helped co-create Sense8 with the Wachowskis. These days, he is one of the people creating the shared universe used by AWA Studios for their published work, and has had two books get published this year, the novel Together We Will Go, and the non-fiction book, Becoming a Writer, Staying a Writer.
1: He had a pretty good understanding of what, what a classic Serling story was. We
2: don't need to say who Rod Serling is, do we? I feel like that one is something even the kids can figure out on their own. Like, I need a break every once in a while, too.
1: I mean, I think there are flaws with his version as well, but at least... Because to me, a Twilight Zone story is a two-act story. Mm -hmm. So when you have a one-hour Twilight Zone, you're not doing a Twilight Zone. What is this? What am I looking at here?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I see what you mean.
1: (laughs) The other part of a Twilight Zone that makes it work is the narration. The narration saves you, and I proved this to myself, saves you two scenes of exposition. How
2: did you get here so fast?
1: voice voiceover narration. That ironic, something strange happens to an ordinary person story. That to me is a Twilight Zone story. There are other perfectly acceptable ways to tell science fiction, fantasy, horror stories in a dramatic form, but they're not necessarily Twilight Zones or, or they're just something else. Outer Limits was a completely different form. We will control the horizontal. We
0: will control the vertical. We can roll the image, make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur,
1: or sharpen it to crystal clarity. Didn't do me any good knowing that, but I, I still stick to it. And knowing is half the battle. It was, it was a, a, a ton of fun just to be, just to know what was coming back and to be associated with it, and then to see it from the inside and see it. I was literally the last. It was was like, you know, DiCaprio with the Titanic. I was the last person off Twilight Zone.
2: My ship is going down, and I'm going down with it. It
1: It's like a body that was dying because we had been canceled, but we still had a few things to deliver.
0: I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes he is.
1: Right. <laughs> and so we had we were spread over something like five buildings at CBS Radford, which is still around the corner from me.
2: Located at 4024 Radford Avenue in the heart of Studio City, California, CBS Studio Center is a massive lot owned by Viacom CBS, and was originally constructed by Max Ennett in 1928. Over the years the studio changed hands a few times and became home to stars like Roy Rogers and John Wayne, and was the location for shows like Leave It to Beaver, The Rifleman, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, My Three Sons, Rhoda and Gilligan's Island. CBS finally purchased the lot from Republic Pictures in 1967, and has been the primary owner ever since. There are three backlits here, and one is designed to look like a New York Street, where Seinfeld was filmed in the mid-90s. The residential backlit was used by the show American Housewife until March of 2021.
1: And about every week they would come by and close out one set of offices and then who's ever left would have to move. Some people were gone. and it basically became like George and me uh, were the only two writers left in one building out of five.
0: Is anybody using this chair?
1: Even then George left because his deal was up before mine. So I was the last person there simply around like if somebody would come up, we're doing post-production. We need wild lines. We need somebody to look at this cut because there, we need to have some walla that is <laughs> written to be recorded and put it here. That was, that was my job. I was kind of, and I kind of turned out the lights when I left.
0: Oh, I tell you. I'm the luckiest son of a bitch on earth. Sorry, we're closed.
1: Oh. Wow. Oh. But then I went right into Mac, I mean, I didn't go right into Max headroom,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but Max headroom was my next port of call about four months later, three or four months later. But I was already writing one by
0: then. You hear stories about shows ending, but very rarely do you talk to the very last person <laughs> that was on the show. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, I could I could feel the cold icy water
1: right up to here. a Titanic it was, reference. It was it was it was sad. Um and infuriating because it didn't need really didn't need to go that way. I think had things been a little different, the show could have had a, a good run right. even though I know objectively as a viewer And even from a more informed, subjective view as a former network executive and historian of television, that in an an anthology show, has almost no chance of of working Mm. in in the broadcast universe as it existed then or really now. In other words, Leo, what the hell are we doing? Twilight Zone was considered to be an anomaly even in 1960. In fact, when Serling sold the show in 58, CBS didn't want it. I mean, they had to buy it because he had a deal. They were gonna buy whatever he he wanted to do, and he wanted to do a half hour science fiction fantasy anthology. Is
2: that so wrong?
1: And I have a good authority that the reaction from CBS
0: was, oh God, not that,
1: <laughs> not an anthology.
2: Uh, um,
0: some of them still react that way.
1: <laughs> that's the same way, here's a little bit of, of television history. The same way The, same way, uh, the Fugitive got on the air in the early 60s. An
0: innocent victim of blind justice. Falsely convicted for the murder of his wife. Reprieved by fate when a train wreck freed him en route to the death house.
1: It was not, everybody looks at it, it was a huge success. It's still one of the most viewed hours of TV drama ever. 50 million people watched the finale. ABC did not want that concept. Roy Huggins, the television genius who was pitching it? Born
2: in 1914, and having worked as both a civil servant and an industrial engineer in the 1940s, Roy Huggins was a novelist, a screenwriter, and eventually, a television producer, creating a number of shows, and wrote scripts under a variety of pseudonyms. A number of his novels were turned into films or TV shows, and he most famously created Maverick, The Fugitive, and The Rockford Files. Roy was also a member of the Communist Party, and rather than remain silent, he named 19 people to the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1952, which prevented him from being blacklisted. After Warner Brothers denied credit and money for the work he created for them, Roy began to seek more ownership rights for his creations. This led to producers wanting the same contract he had, the Huggins contract. With a career that spanned almost 50 years, Roy Huggins passed away on April 3rd of 2002.
1: Did not actually want to be in there. He was sort of in there because his agent had made a deal for him and and he's they said, (laughs) told him, they have to take basically whatever you want to do. And he was pitching it to a room full of ABC executives. And every one of them said, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. We don't want to do this, and it was only because he had a deal and he, the actual president of ABC president of ABC at the time was sitting at the end of the table, said, "I kind of like this.. Huh? And the kind of thing you never think would happen, especially if oh, you're Max God. Headroom fans, you know think of that that boardroom in Max Headroom and the, the toadies right. around right. it with Ben Cheviot, right? It's like Ben Cheviot saying he likes it. and somebody who's his, his deputy, the West Coast deputy is actually saying, No, no, no. It's a dumb idea, sir. I mean, almost every breakthrough piece of television you could think of has only gotten on the air because somebody pushed or there was an an accident like it. Like Hill Street Blues going on NBC at a time when their ratings, they were the fifth out of three networks. Right. (laughs) You know, they had to put something. We could put out the shadows cast by the fight. How much? Pound. Well,
0: that's great. You film the shadows, and you broadcast the shadows? Just yeah, shadows.
1: yeah. That's so Yeah, nice. just For a Can get any more? Well... Well, I know somebody at the London Marathon. Probably can get the shadows cast by them. Um. So that, that was Twilight Zone, and that was its history, and that's why, you know, it keeps... It keeps coming back, and it's never actually a smart move. I would never... I would not do it. Mm. So, how about that, you know? I was happy to be part of it, but I still wouldn't do it myself. Sure. Not if I wanted to make money and be a success as a, as a... Any kind of network or channel.
2: So if, if we have the story right, you're working on The Twilight Zone right before you're working on Max. And in Austin's research, what he found was that you were one of the few writers anyone met with who got what Max was about right away. Is that how it went? Like, do we have the story, right?
1: Well, it's certainly flattering to me, and I know that Steve Roberts thinks that, and I think the evidence suggests- Well, you know. I mean, what happened was that Phil DeGuerre-
2: Philip DeGuerre began working in television in 1968 and worked on a large number of shows, including Beretta, Simon and Simon and Jag
1: who was the showrunner for Twilight Zone. Hmm. Fantastically funny, occasionally troubled, very experienced TV producer as Twilight Zone had been canceled and we were still, you know, tie off the the, the wounds. He got partnered up with the team that was at ABC that was going to do Max Headroom that he was basically brought in to babysit. Hmm. Peter Wagg, the British producer.
2: Peter primarily produced music videos before he got involved with the original UK teleplay and produced through to the end of the US series. Afterwards, Peter Wagg produced a series of Cirque du Soleil movies and videos.
1: And so Phil, looking around, saying, well, here's this six-episode order for this very science fiction dystopian TV series. And here I've got all these writers on Twilight Zone who... (laughs) are the best writers of this kind of stuff, I know. I can see where this is going. So all of us were given a chance to pitch to Max Hedger. Mm. A couple of people, I I don't think Alan Brenner wanted to. I think he was off doing something else and Rockne O'Bannon had just sold a feature film.
2: Rockne S. O'Bannon is a screenwriter and a television writer and producer who has created a number of incredible works over the years. Back then, Rockne was only known for a few spec scripts he had written for The Twilight Zone and Amazing Stories. Later, he would go on to create Sequest DSV, Farscape, Defiance and the CW's Cult. And, he's also known for something he developed into a movie.
1: Which became Alien Nation, so he was going off to do that. Hmm. But... Of the, a guy named Jim Crocker.
2: Who listeners may remember as the gentleman who wrote the story and teleplay for Rakers, and who got his start on The Rockford Files.
1: Uh, another uh, writing team, Marty Pasco and Becky Parr.
2: Martin Pascoe and Rebecca Parr are a writing team that worked on a number of shows together, and on other shows independently, and each had quite a varied career. They worked together on The Twilight Zone, Simon & Simon, Roseanne and Free Spirit, and also wrote the Max Headroom episode War which we will be reviewing on this program next episode.
1: And George and me were all sent off to see the the original British 25 Minutes into the Future, because that was the only thing that existed, and then meet with Peter and Phil and Steve and talk through some ideas and pitch. And we all got assignments.
0: Excellent.
1: You're all hired. And I can remember I wound up renting an office from Rodney O'Bannon. Hmm. He had this little office that you kind of in and out for a couple of years, just down Ventura Boulevard, It was like one room in a bathroom, uh, $300 a month.
2: According to inflationtool.com, the same room that Michael rented from Rockney in 1986 would go for $700 a month in 2021.
1: And so I had this assignment. Uh, I didn't have room to work at home right then because I had a, a, a new baby and a small house. And so I'm sitting there in what was one of the rainier seasons in LA history.
2: That's not ominous.
1: So I pitched this idea for security systems. Okay. And having the time of my life, I mean, I was writing this and I just, it's one of the few times where I'm just looking at the experience and knowing it from the inside is like, this is what I was born to do. So So I I did connect with the material to that extent. I turned in the script, you know, by this time, I'd probably written for eight or nine TV shows. So I've I've been through the experience of turning in scripts and you never quite know how they're going to be received. And sometimes you feel you connected with the material. Sometimes it was just a job. I turned that in just in absolute confidence. I just said, this is going to rock their world Mm -hmm. because it is perfect. Their show. I am a badass. I am a badass. is a badass. She is a badass. She is, a badass. She is a, badass. Are a badass. And I was right. I mean, I I think I was out running some errand in the day before cell phones. Mm-hmm. I know it's probably hard to believe. You're
0: older than you've ever been, and now you're even older.
1: But I stopped at the farmer's market because I turned in the script like. On a Monday, this is a Tuesday. And I was just arrogant or confident enough to think they're going to love this. But of course. And the only way people would get in touch with you is, you know, they would call your home phone and leave a message. Hello.
0: I hear the phone a ringing. It's ringing off
1: the wall. I hear the phone a ringing. I'm mighty glad you called. And if you leave your number, when you hear the tone We'll be sure and call you On our telephone We'll be talking to you real soon So I stopped to the farmer's market Dialed my home number And uh, heard a message from Peter Wagg Saying Love the script Can you come in and meet with us tomorrow? And I went in and they offered me a job When can you start? So that was how it happened.
0: And that particular episode, too, uh, Security Systems, uh, that feels to me like, and and I don't know if this was like the buzzword that was going around at the time when you were um, working on this, but that feels like the blueprint for the um, cyberpunk role-playing game.
1: Cyberpunks are the true rebels. Cyberculture is coming in under the radar of ordinary society and the an only alliance of the tech world. Past to say. Welcome to the Cyber Corporation.
0: Cyberbanks.: So much of that game is about you putting together a team, finding a location you're going to break into, breaking in, getting the secret data transferred to your computer, and then getting yeah. out. And I was like, that's ci- security. That, that is your script.: <laughs> Cyberspace set free. Hello, Virtual
2: reality.:
1: What I just simply you know pitched to them was the idea that it Maxed. Has to deal with or confront, in essence, his female avatar hmm. in a in a hostile environment, and that kind of led me to the okay, you know, what is Edison doing? You know, and there ultimately has to be a hacking and cracking thing. Right. And- Welcome to our show. Hack the planet. Hack the planet. I was certainly aware of of that type of writing. I mean. William Gibson had published Neuromancer in 1984. I think the most important difference with the Internet and the World, world Wide Web is that they're not top-down hierarchical structures on the order of broadcast television. So we, we, we're starting to deal, we're dealing with entirely new media here. So it's it's anyone's guess how it will go. And I certainly knew that. I knew Gibson and knew, knew all that kind of writing and was a big fan of it. So, it's probably less that it came from security systems just that security systems was drawing from the same same tropes the same you know in essence film noir style True. stories
0: You just heard part two of our conversation with Michael Cassett, a writer and television producer who worked on Max Headroom in the late 80s. Why not visit the show notes on this particular episode, BetweenRadioZine.com, and you'll find a link to a video of this conversation that you can watch and enjoy at your leisure. Thank you. And that's going to do it for us this week here on the program. Somewhere in between a radio zine, The Michael Cassett Interview, Part 2, Issue 44. Contained, The Michael Cassett Interview, Part 2. Written by Heather Zajkowski and Austin Rich, and featuring a conversation with Michael Cassett. Let this be a lesson to you as you continue in life. When you have the opportunity to work with George R.R. Martin on a couple of TV shows early in your career, you should take it. You never know which of you might create Game of Thrones someday. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most zines, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story, music or poetry that you'd like to send in or read, or you just want to be a part of the show, why not drop a line to austinrich at gmail.com That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you.